Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show from Pasadena, California, that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome two very special guests, Kim Cooper and Richard Shave of Esoturic, a tour guide project that showcases and exposes the secret heart of Los Angeles. This episode was so unique that, like a tour hosted by Kim and Richard, I feel compelled to set the scene. On a Tuesday morning in July, we all agreed to meet at the world-renowned Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens in San Marino. Tuesdays are closed to the public, but I was able to join Kim and Richard because they are members of the Reader Program that we discuss in the show. I wasn't sure what to expect from this conversation. Richard and I had talked and emailed before the show, and I was honored to be asked my perspective on a historic sign a friend of his was trying to protect in Hollywood. What I stumbled on was Kim and Richard, sitting under a tree in the beautiful courtyard of the Huntington, surrounded by several of their friends, deeply discussing everything from history and preservation to COVID and bees. It was an absolute delight. With them was Aaron Chase, Associate Curator of Architecture and Photography at the Huntington, Stephen Gee, Father Dylan Littlefield, and Bill Ellinger. It was a joy just to sit and listen to them all talking. That conversation could have been an episode of the podcast by itself. Soon Aaron had to leave, but Stephen, Father Dylan, and Bill stayed to watch. Stephen is an award-winning writer and producer that recently published the book Driving Force, Automobiles and the New American City from 1900 to 1930. His other work includes books about architects John Parkinson and Paul Williams and buildings like Los Angeles' City Hall. Father Dylan Littlefield is the spiritual director of the Society of St. Maximilian Colby, an independent faith group rooted in the Catholic and Anglican tradition. Father Dylan also serves as the Episcopal Vicar and Archdeacon for the Apostolic Sacramental Church and Companions of Francis. And finally, Bill is the principal of Ellinger Architects and Associates, is a renowned preservation architect with extensive knowledge of passing architecture, and incredibly, as we found out when talking, was my father's boss in the 1970s. Kim and Richard's story is well known, and since we were limited on time, we dove headfirst into the conversation. But a brief recap is that they're both Los Angeles natives who first met while attending UC Santa Cruz. The story goes that they hated each other and went their separate ways. 18 years later, they met again by chance, and the rest is, as they say, history. Kim has always been interested in true crime, and launched a blog about Los Angeles in 1947, a year most famous for the Black Dahlia. That eventually led her and Richard to lead tours about the City of Angels, and Esoteric was born. They've hosted countless webinars, bus and walking tours across Los Angeles, all the while using their skills as storytellers and their passion for preservation to keep old Los Angeles alive. So without further delay, my conversation with Kim and Richard. Kim and Richard, welcome to the podcast. James, thank you for having us. 
it is wonderful to be here, finally. We started talking back in November. I know, I indoctrinated you and deputized you immediately by yes. having you write prospectus to preserve commercial spaces and signage on commercial That's spaces. That's right, this, was, and this so happened this a couple is, months ago. Now, yeah. now, I, now I feel you're really ready to interview us because now no, you know you. what it means to be deputized. <laughs> it's very dangerous to call Richard because if you have any expertise at all, you will be put to work because Los Angeles <laughs> desperately needs everyone who knows how to do took, anything. Like, forever to get in contact with you guys and then you guys have been very responsive but and then all of a sudden there's like two days where i got like three or four emails from richard being like i have this friend coming in from france can you talk to her i have this thing anyway it's great to meet you in person both of you in person and we're actually at the huntington library it's on a tuesday so the museum is closed but we actually have an audience there are three people here that are surrounding us which is makes the experience all the more better but your backgrounds are really well known you've talked about it in several different places but you're both from los angeles yes Oh, yeah. And we, are, so, we are stuck in what, <laughs> what was Los Angeles like when you were growing up? Because I'm an L.A. native as well. well. Every Los Angeles is different because I, thank you, Richard, I lived in apartments in Hollywood below Sunset, which mm -hmm. is an extremely different experience from living in a lovely house in Cheviot Hills and having that experience of walking out my door and seeing Ray prostitutes Bradbury. being, you saw Ray Bradbury, I saw the prostitutes being rousted by cops on horseback because the Olympics were coming. I got an education in public space and alternate modes of making a living. And you got an ed education in how you can be Ray Bradbury and never learn to drive and still be the king of Cheviot Hills. Correct. Uh, Los Angeles, for me, Chevy, Chevy Hills, Rancho Park, technically. Sorry. That's okay. So, schooled in Santa Monica, Crossroads, St. Augustine Elementary, Crossroads Middle School, High School. Early memories going to Santa Monica, taking the bus to St. Augustine Elementary School, uh, walking into a cafe on 3rd Street where the bus stopped, the number 8 bus stop, walking into a cafe, and everyone at the cafe got a racing form because I got there early and I wanted to get some breakfast because it was like... 7.30 in the morning and I got the early bus because my dad was like on his way to the hospital as a doctor. Anyway, so I walked into the cafe and everyone sitting down had a racing form, but of course I didn't because I was like 11. <laughs> I was like, I want to know what the racing form was. And so that's my great sort of time travel cafes on the Third Street Promenade handing out racing forms to customers is just like that hasn't happened in 50 years. Right. Being in Hollywood, it was just a zone of bookshops and record shops and independent punk rock stores and right. people being incredibly creative and living cheap. And I think a huge amount of the work that we do is just seeing, wow, we used to have this Los Angeles where everyone in the world came here because they wanted to do neat stuff and be part of this hive. We were talking about bees earlier. This hive of creativity where you're just going to bounce into each other and start to do things together and be able to survive working part-time at a record store, that's all gone. And, and it's sort of the tragedy of our lives that we're missing the old timers, the people who just are part of the LA, the warp and weft. So, so we, we love the city, we love the people. I, th I think and we advocate. Yeah, and I think for me growing up, a big part, my, a lot of my friends, most of my friends' parents worked in the entertainment industry, producers, writers, directors. And so I, I just grew up at friends, parents, parties, like with all these amazing 
creative people, writers and directors and producers, many of whom emigrated from, from Germany as, as, as the Weimar Republic collapsed and the rise of National Socialism. You just get all these amazing, like for instance, uh, I, I remember I was in chemistry class. I was in my, my 10th grade chemistry class and I was doing a lab. I was assigned to a, do a lab with my lab partner, who was this guy sitting next to me. Just he was on the baseball team. I didn't really know. And like I'm, I'm doing, writing, I'm filling out the form for the lab report. Right, mm-hmm. Richard, Shave, partner, Todd, Todd Vile. Todd, do you spell your name with a W? W E uh, yeah, yeah. Todd, do you like have an an aunt, an older aunt, that likes kind of zany and ex- yeah. My mom won't let me talk to her. Lot Lania was his aunt. So I was, I, like, I went to school, like, Kurt Vile's nephew was in my chemistry class. And so I grew up loving Three Penny Opera and Isherwood and Berlin, right? Just this wonderful creative haven that Los Angeles created for all these intellectuals. And we're right. missing that. And we're, that, that's the point of my story is I think Los Angeles is losing that. And that's what Kim and I want to try and help bring back. I grew, up in, I, I grew up in the Griffith Park area, and I've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, but my dad used to work in Hollywood, not the industry, but the location. So he used to work on the corner of Hollywood or Vine and Yucca. It's the AMDA building yes. now. Yes. And that's being yes. sold, so that's a whole other topic. Yes. But I remember going, this is the 80s, I remember there used to be McDonald's on Vine that was next to the Greyhound bus station. I remember that so intimately. And... Every time you go through the drive-thru, you'd see all the different people getting off the buses into Hollywood, streaming into Hollywood in the 80s. Yeah. It was such an interesting time, both the good and the bad. But We wouldn't go to Yucca because Yucca was just, if you turned on to Yucca, you were going to get into trouble. That was, that was a very wild street, and it, it's a small street. It is. It's an interesting area. It's, it hasn't changed all that much. Oh, gosh. I w- I, I'm so surprised that you say that because we wrote a walking tour yeah. called Franklin just, Village, just Old Hollywood, right. and we explicitly do not go below. God, we... Yucca. Yucca. We, because by staying above, we can still have the feeling of that, that, that small-scale Old Hollywood. And when you start to get lower, this hyper-development of these oh, zones of... They're very strange buildings. They're not corporate. No. But they're highly private, and they're just party zones. And they don't feel like anyone's actually keeping an eye on anything. Because <laughs> money's flowing in, but it doesn't feel like you have any foothold. It, it really freaks us ho- out. Ho- Hollywood there. really concerns us. Um, in the course of writing what I think is one of our greatest walking tours, and every walking tour we write is amazing. But, but we really is, fall in love with the way these stories fall together. But I've noticed, as in the course of the, the six to nine months we were writing this walking tour as, a, as one of the 27 other things we're doing in that period, that we would call our friend Mickey Jackson at AIDS Healthcare Foundation. AIDS Healthcare Foundation has a number of offices in Hollywood. And I would say to her, so Mickey, I don't know, I keep meaning to ask you, but every time Kim and I go into Hollywood, there's no one there. Yeah, there's and nobody like, on the street. I, I'm like confused because I first started noticing this in 2021 and like lockdown still kind of coming. And so maybe like it's the pandemic still, but now it's 2022 and I'm in Hollywood and there's no one here. and. You work in... And she's like, yeah, there's no one in Hollywood. But that's an opportunity. (laughs) It (laughs) is. There's no one in Hollywood. I don't know. But I remember that bus station. I remember going in and and waiting for the bus to go see my grandparents in Ventura County, sitting at the little... They were like a school desk, but they had a television in them. 
and if you had a quarter, you could watch 15 minutes of, of live television. Wow. And you could just watch broadcasts. Like, you could go from Channel 7, Channel 2, and... You, it was loud enough that you could hear your TV, and then there was this sort of hum of all the other TVs. Interesting. And then you get on the bus and like sit next to a nun or something. It was always amazing. Let's dive into your tour group, which you started in 2007, because you started a blog about 1947. And I wanted to talk to you about what made 1947 such an interesting year. So that was that was my project, and I, I've always been very interested in crime because I don't get along well with other people. Somehow I've become a hospitality professional, but I've always been scared and confused by people. So reading about crime as a child helped me understand human motivations, which was a massive mystery to me. And I I thought, I'm just going to write a true crime book about this year, 1947, because there are two extremely interesting unsolved crimes. You've got the murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. That interests me simply because she seems to be a very intriguing individual, one of these newcomers who fell into trouble, which is something that happens generation after generation, including people I know now or then. And you have this mafia whacking. So you have this whole underworld of Mickey Cone. Sorry. Wrong. Bugsy Siegel. Wrong monster. It's a while since we did this stuff. And the mafia stuff has never, as you can tell, been top of my mind because financial crimes are the dullest of them all which is why it's such a tragedy that we now have to document all of these real estate hustles and these illegal hotels and stuff, because it is boring. At the end of the day, it's just five or six guys making a fortune, doing nothing cool with it. But while I was researching this, I was going to, I found the Glendale Library, which was a nice library to work in, and they had newspapers on microfilm. And I was just reading and taking notes. And as I started reading the 1947 papers, I was like, wow, the, these crimes I've heard about are nothing. They're, they're interesting, but every day in places I know, stuff is happening that is so wild. I want to like go to the location and see if it still looks like this. I want to tell people about it. So the blog, the voice of the blog was... No, 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 you have... Then, then, then I appeared. Then you appeared. So all of this was obviously kismet. We had to be together to make this happen. And he, what did I say? He encouraged me instead of taking notes for this book that I wanted to write, which I probably would have written, (laughs) to basically put my my research online as I was doing it. And he helped me create a blog. This became this Crime A Day blog. And because that wasn't the plan originally, it didn't start on January 1, it started in March. As we were writing, I I was writing about the crimes, and then Nathan Marsak, our dear friend, Mr. Bunker Hill, who you can now meet operating Angel Flight Railway a couple days a week. Nathan would go to the scene in his Saturn and pick fights with people and take pictures and document the transformation of neighborhoods. Mm. And very soon after this blog launch, people were getting in touch and saying, I would really, really like to go to some of these crime scenes with you and Nathan and have you just sort of leave the driving to you. Do you do tours? So that it was very much popular demand. Mm. And, then, and then Julie Corman, Roger Corman's wife, sent us an email and said, you have a Raymond Chandler tour. Right. We didn't realize this, but this was part of the zeitgeist because there had been a Raymond Chandler tour in the 80s. Which I vaguely remembered as a child of one of my friend's parents talking about. You're like, oh, yeah, that was a really cool It was like a school bus that would pick people up in the valley, and there was a saxophone player in the back. (laughs) This was a real high-concept thing, and they would spend eight hours going everywhere. So people had been waiting for this to come back, and we're like, okay, yeah, sure, there's a Raymond Chandler tour. 
course there is. You forgot about the, the library card because this is not Oh, is just, right. I mean, this, this is, is why for Rich, sequence. So Richard, because as you mentioned, his father was a doctor. He had this UCLA faculty level library card, which in the early aughts, I had to go down to the Glendale Library. I had to like peer through a magnifying what's it and to actually be able to log on and get access to databases. Now everybody's like, doing like it. ProQuest. It's incredible. But the UCLA library card gave you access to ProQuest at home. Which is amazing. 2 a.m. in your pajamas. In my jammies. And you could blow stuff up and you yeah. could save things. You could look at it later. It's transformative. All the tools. The tools back then, it's laughable to think about what we managed to put together, but we did. And now... I love that so many people are researching their local histories and that more things are coming online. And there's still plenty that isn't online, but it's fantastic. We often whitewash history and we think back nostalgically that life was so simpler and was so such a safer time. I grew up next to the, or close to the La Bianca house. Hmm. And I would drive by it probably every week. So my best friend lived on Waverly. Did you know? Not until later on, like when I was older, my parents mentioned it. Yeah. And then in Los Feliz, there's the Dr. Harold Perelson house, which was 1959, which my, my father, who grew up in the area, had no idea about. He never heard about it. That's very much an internet era <clears throat> yes. situation where people were creeping up, looking in the windows, sharing their videos. Yes. That, that, that house <clears throat> took off, and it is a tragedy what happened. It is. So how do you help people discover this side of Los Angeles that gives us a little bit more of a balanced view. What I try to do with these stories is, I, I think it's my nature that I don't want this to just be a blood and guts exploitative, like, oh, look at where this awful stuff happened. This house is toxic. I, I, I feel like if somebody went to all the trouble of getting into horrible situations in Los Angeles and actually bleeding out and dying here, the least that we can do is, is honor their memory and respect them as human beings and let their story live on because these stories are all that they left. And in many cases, these scenarios that they got into, it only happened because of who they were. And it shines a light on who they were as human beings. In many cases, these are not well-known people. If you look at someone like Elizabeth Short, an incredibly anonymous individual, the Black Dahlia victim, someone who's, although she's been misrepresented as being a wannabe actress, somebody who came to Hollywood in order to find success and fame, she was not. She was just a wanderer, someone who was looking for love, looking for belonging. Mm -hmm. And she's found that belonging because there are people all over the world who are sort of in love with her and obsessed with her mm -hmm. and want to follow her footsteps, want to go the places she goes. She went, think about her, remember her, honor her. The people who come on that tour, our Black Dahlia tour, which is our earliest and our flagship, are just such lovely individuals who are so sensitive and caring and respectful. I think it's really a nice thing to be able to do, actually, to bring these crimes back, to go to historic places which often feel very much like they did, and to understand what life was like for people in the past, because ordinary life, uh, th these people exist outside of the history books, and the only place that they are known is in these sort of salacious stories that sold newspapers, and the newspapers developed Southern California as we know it, especially the Times. And now we can sort of reflect back on them and say, hey, look, all of these properties are now targeted for redevelopment, but they're also crime scenes and they teach us who we are as human right. beings, as Angelinos. So it, it's, that, that's what we're trying to do. I think that, if I could just jump in for a second. Always. I think that the biggest challenge of what we do and the longer we do it, the more time we spend 
wading through public policy. And public policy is the narrative created by the city of Los Angeles to destroy any history that Los Angeles has to allow developers a blank slate upon which to create narratives about why their five over one developments on Vine Street are totally awesome. And I want to be a part of it. And then they give them like cutesy historic names. Right. And so I think that the biggest challenge and, and why I think we excel at what we do is we have a tremendous repertoire of compelling narratives about the city, which intersect with really challenging public policy questions which face the city. Whereas if we just gave a bus tour on public policy, no one, everyone would get off after the first hour. It's just like, it's just so boring and you have to make it compelling. And I think what we're really trying to do is to get people excited about their past and realize that the city of Los Angeles actively wants them not to know about any of this stuff. So what's the secret to telling a good story? The, the secret is time travel. I am very, very, very lucky that when I read these stories, they come alive for me, and I really feel like I'm getting to know them. I know enough about the environment in which these awful things happened that I can pull from different threads. I feel like when we're hot and people are there in the moment and we're in a space where it really feels like if you just squint your eyes, it's 1947, it's 1922, Telling it in a way where you could close your eyes, open them again, and all of these people are here. And you hop on a streetcar and you go to Hollywood and you see a show. If if you can bring it alive, if it really feels real, if it feels like if someone asks me a question that isn't part of the script such, such that it is, and I can answer it, then we're good. So the answer is knowing as much as you can and having all these different layers of stories so that you can hop around time wise and so you understand what's around the next corner. That's how it works. And we've been doing it for a long time. I think writing a good bus tour, it's very important to understand how to write a good screenplay. And I don't want to get into technique because that's boring. But I'm fascinated by it. You sto- can... Story structure is really important. And it's really important for the neighborhood crime tours. Yeah. Right, Kim? Yeah. Where, where you're not telling a single narrative I mean, sometimes for four we hours. have to drop a great story because it just doesn't feel, fit with the rhythm. So it's, it's very complicated. And I don't know how to explain how we structure a neighborhood crime well, You tour. can't make them cry at the beginning. You gotta make it's them cry real, towards the real, end. It, it, there's just Yiddish comedy theater. <laughs> y- Yiddish comedy theater is the secret to our bus tours. The, du- the Duppus. Okay? For those of you that don't know what the Duppus is, it's Jerry Seinfeld. Okay? Jerry Seinfeld is the Duppus. Right, and then also we immediately start bickering so people know what they're in for. Next question. Let's just let's <laughs> stop talking about technique. It bores people. I, I love it. We can spend an entire afternoon talking about it technique. It is the Kim and Richard show, and, and the Kim and Richard show is a lot. <laughs> Even for me. Well, I think we're going to jump around the script a little bit, because you mentioned the bus tour. You had to obviously put them on hold with COVID. Yeah, we wrote like 50 webinars in two years. <laughs> you had to pivot. <laughs> it's an, I hate pivoted that name. to video. Yes, pivoted to webinars and Zoom and all that stuff. But you just had your first bus tour in three years? Three plus. Three yeah. plus years. So this is, we're recording this in July. You had your first bus tour in June. And so, it was the Black Dahlia, of course, because of course. we had to go back to Go back to the original. Roots. So how did it go? What was the response Wait, from can people? Can I talk about the wheelbarrow? Yeah. Okay, so. I don't think that's the question, though. No, but it's great. Whatever you want. <laughs> we got this wheel. I spent most of the pandemic looking for a wheelbarrow because 
we realized we were going to start to give bus tours out of Grand Central Market, which is the greatest decision we ever made in our entire lives. But the bus is now across a hill street from where we get we park. We get to park in the owner's parking space at Grand Central. Thank you, Adele Yellen. So I had to find a wheelbarrow that was small enough that would fit in the back seat of our car that I could fill with everything we need for the bus tour in one trip to get to the bus. See, when we started giving tours, we ran into James Elroy, who is old friends with, with Joan Renner, who is one of our crime buddies, who was a blogger with us and who co-hosts some of these true crime tours. And he wanted to help us, which was just lovely. And he volunteered for Christmas 2007 to give a bus tour about his life and his mother's murder and all these things that people are fascinated by. And, and James Elroy, surprisingly or not, ended up being an incredibly good tour guide and uh, incredibly hospitable to the point where he would just lock eyes with every guest on these tours, learn about them, remember their names, basically just take them into his heart. And then we were at the site of his mother's murder in El Monte, and he would not let us get off the bus. And the sun was pouring in the front of the bus, and he was like in a, in a crucif- crucified position, standing at the front of 50 people, reading a beautiful poem about the death of his mother and his memories and how he was not going to let anyone get off because this was holy ground, which was incredible. But what he didn't tell us when we were giving this tour, which helped to get the word out about what we were doing and was just an incredible gift, he didn't say, I run on four shots of espresso every two hours, and if I don't get them, I will die. And so we were in San Gabriel and he's like where's my espresso and we're like first we're hearing about it on the bus looking around desperately and that is how we learned that we bring coffee in a Cambro no matter what we have a lot of gear on the bus yeah being off the bus for three years deciding in the midst of writing 50 webinars in two years which kept us sane and was incredible and starting to write walking tours which was the greatest intellectual leap we've ever achieved together and I bought these boots and I really like them by writing walking tours and waiting to get back on the bus the bus is just I've, I've had a chance to retool and just just everything about the bus is better less gear oh please you you figured out how to put the slideshow in people's smartphone yeah which it is was incredible just like so the, the pandemic was just a series of tremendous tech stack achievements making life better and now we're back on the bus and it's just better this is really it this the is air really conditioning it. is lovely, but, you know, we get off more than we used to. It's, it's these better are weird to get times. Off. So what are the plans for the rest of the year then? We'd gotten into this rhythm of, like, producing new content all the time, which is fun for us, but I think it's unfair to the audience, which uh, people want to know when the next version of a certain tour is. And if we're not going to do it for a year, that's how many years are there in our lives? So yeah. we're going to try to get a schedule again, because traditionally... We used to do the Dahlia four times a year, and we're not at that point now because we've written so many walks. But we're going to just kind of start cycling through existing walking tours and bus tours. We have some special events because, hey, there's always special events. Richard, your birthday tour. Oh, yeah. So I think we're going to try and do two bus tours a month and two walks a month. Okay, that's the plan. And we're going to try and keep the buses a little heavier. We're going to start to lean on buses more now that it's getting warm. And I, I don't know, we're just... Yeah, the walking tours start early, so it's not too hot. And, yeah. But they're I, not for everybody. If you're older, you might not think that you want to walk around for a few hours. We want it to be as accessible as possible. And at some point, we'll get back to these forensic science seminars. Where I don't know. I say that on mic. I don't know. I love those. Things. We have a lot to do. And, and, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it right.
Right. And the best part is just getting a bunch of people together who love L.A. and showing them things that they haven't seen before. One thing that we do on all of our tours, we go through a lot of name tags. Everybody checks in and I want their first name in their neighborhood. And occasionally people have come from far away, but mostly these are Angelinos. And I will not accept West L.A. I need specifics. I want to know. You give Rancho me your intersection. Park. I'll take it. Rancho because, Park. Because Palms. everybody. Mar Vista. You, you are your neighborhood. And if you've been there for a while, it becomes part of your identity. And, right. and it really helps ground us and helps us understand who's coming and, and part of the adventure with us. So what neighborhood do you live in since you brought up neighborhoods? We live in El Serena. We live as far east as we can live and still be in the city of Los Angeles. And if we had known then what we know now, we might have lived outside of the city of Los Angeles because it's quite a town. Kevin DeLeon is our current council member and Jose, Jose Huizar is our former council member. And it's, it's just, it's been a really amazing ride. I used to work in Eagle Rock and I remember there's a Vons on Figueroa, and it has Weezar's name on the corner. I think there's a monument sign. At least it used to be. I don't know well, if it does. What was it, his office? No, it was because they developed this project. They put Weezar's name as the council member on the corner of, the, of Figueroa and whatever it was, just as another way of saying, hey, look what I did yeah. to, to bring on more development in the area. So, My favorite Weezar monument is probably the jogging path around Evergreen, which was not his project, but he put his name on it, and everyone always, it's a mural. It's on both sides, and people mess with it all the time. So Los Angeles has a very interesting political history, but you also follow what's going on in City Hall. So Weezar is included in that. Um, hey, Weezar emerged from his Instagram fast to comment on our post. And I was did very really? proud of that, yes. When I blamed him for the fire in the, in the roller derby girls space that, uh, whatever, he, he said, no, we helped them. They're not, they weren't evicted from El Sereno because of me. I helped them. Like, whatever. I will say, as we sit here at the Huntington, I will say some of the most important, insightful discussions with federal investigators about the U.S. DOJ case against Jose Huizar, which never went to trial. Some of our best insights and directions have occurred under this tree while eating lunch with friends of ours that work at the federal level who are also readers, who were just really incredibly helpful and took the time to walk us through the indictments and really give us what this means. Because an indictment is, is a wonderful sort of, es, is an esoteric text, right? It's, a, it's an esoteric text. There's a lot that's not said, and there's a lot that's implied in this legal document. And it's very interesting for Kim and I to be here and for me to take time to go look at a 17th century alchemical text at our friend Dr. Klein's office in the Munger here at the Huntington and then come out for lunch and talk to a a federal investigator about the esoteric meaning of the 100-page indictment of Jose Huizar and what the roadmap is that normal people don't see. You have to be very patient with this stuff. I, I think a lot of us have been hopeful that we would actually see Los Angeles cleaned up and all we've seen is little, it, it's an onion and they keep peeling layers off and onion skin is very thin. I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. If they indict everyone, who runs then Los who Angeles? runs Los Angeles? You, Richard? <laughs> it's not such a scary thought, I guess. 
Maybe. it's for me. It is for you. Yeah. <laughs> With Karen Bass coming on as mayor of Los yeah. Angeles, are you hopeful? This is a great thing about doing this in person is that you get to see mannerisms between Kim and Richard. But no, I want to hear what you ask because it's an important question. I'd like to think that Los Angeles is turning a corner. During every administration, that's always the hope, right? But I know that with the Olympics now on the horizon, there's going to be immense pressure from City Hall to clean the city up, in however you want to define cleaning the city up. Are you hopeful of the direction that the city is going or mm-hmm. will go? Okay. I am very concerned that Karen Bass never uttered the word corruption while she was running. I haven't heard her say it since. And she hasn't cleaned up Eric Garcetti's people. She's making a lot of changes on commissions, not all of them. But the planning department is untouched. And the planning department is a criminal enterprise. And what they are doing with the Hollywood uh, community plan update is insane and actually violates all precepts of the work of planners. And they are either, either they are the biggest incompetence that have ever had city jobs, or they are a criminal conspiracy. And they can't be anything else. What is happening there, all the, we have no media, so no one's really looking at it. You can look at the blog of Hollywood Heritage, where a retired engineer named Mike Callahan is trying to put the pieces together. But at the end of the day, the things that are happening are destroying Los Angeles. And you are not going to clean up the city in time for the Olympics if you don't start to actually make the city function. We just were in Fullerton yesterday. We just ended up off the highway. And there, oh, look, there's a nice little park on the edge of Fullerton called Hillcrest. Hillcrest Park. And and it used to be called Auto Park. And we just sort of randomly found it. And we went and we parked and we wandered around. And it's just the most lovely space with a a Red Cross facility. And then a Isaac Walton log cabin up near the top. And all of these beautiful rocky steps that crisscross the... It's a hilly park, so everyone's exercising, just going up these historic stairways. And you get down to the bottom and there's this brand new Korean War monument for everyone who died in the Korean War. It's, it's the most extraordinary thing. And there's a huge fountain, a WPA fountain that they restored. And everywhere you look, clearly people have taken responsibility for public space and done their job. And they've spent money, but not unheard of sums. And in Los Angeles, if you find a problem and you go to the people whose job it is to take care of it, and you say, hey, this isn't working. They're like, oh, sorry, we can't do anything about that. <laughs> but isn't this what you're charged with doing? This is public space that belongs to the city of L.A. None of the departments under Karen Bass are functioning. None of them. And I believe that they're getting a really great, smooth ride towards having an Olympics Games here. But for who? Angelinos actually physically have to live in the city before then, during those two weeks, and after. Will there still be Angelinos by then? We we could get lost in the weeds on this, but I think that what's important to point out about the direction the city is going in is that the city of Los Angeles as a bureaucratic entity, first of all, exists for one and only one reason. The bureaucracy of Los Angeles exists to perpetuate itself as a bureaucracy, and it has absolutely really good at that. It has absolutely no concern about the humanitarian crisis at an international level that that homelessness and lack of affordable housing has created in the city. It has no concern for that. It has no concern for anything I like or care about or anyone. And I think this, the bureaucracy has created itself so that nothing gets connected. So whenever you ask, why isn't there follow-through? Why isn't there follow-through in the city attorney's office from the criminal side, from the the civil side about 
illegal Airbnb rentals. Which they example. have a full list. Every single one. They know. They, they're getting the data feed from Airbnb and they're not getting it from any of the other vendors, but they're getting it from Airbnb and they're the biggest. And they're also getting complaints from people who live nearby but, and in the buildings. But, mm-hmm. but the city attorney's office is structured so that there's no communication between the civil division that gets these complaints and the criminal division, which could potentially bring a suit in court and get the attention and demand the attention of Airbnb for a particular instance. And so it's all just about protecting the city. And so when you ask us, what do we think about where the city is going? I think that the city is a series of competing interests. And I like to have people think about it as an engineer in Minnesota in charge of a lock for the upper Mississippi River. And these lock masters, these engineers, have these books and their algorithms. And the, algor- the book algorithm for the lock is, if this happens, you have to open the locks and then you're going to flood all the farms to the south because you don't want to flood the cities to the north. You have all these things you have to balance to open the gates. And I don't know what the lock... I, don't, I, I want to know what that lock algorithm book for the city of Los Angeles is because I think that the towns above the lock have flooded and the towns below the lock have flooded. City Hall is fine, except somebody just threw an incendiary device through the window. You ask us about our youth and our past and our remembrance of Los Angeles in the past. And as someone who has seen the city change and been interested in the built environment of Los Angeles since I was 14 years old, and I'm, that was 40 years ago, I can tell you that Los Angeles is Los Angeles not just because of the physical environment we live in, but because so many people can project their dreams onto Los Angeles. So it's a kingdom of, of ideas that are infinite, but we live in the physical world and they're very finite. And I think we're running out of finite resources. In 1984, homeless people were allowed to sleep in the chambers of City Hall at night. And maybe there were 20 or 30 people, maybe, in the winter. That was the mindset then. Whether that's bad or good, I feel like that was a resource that had, they could put that resource on the table. That does, those resources don't, there, there are no more resources. And I don't know, I'm very concerned. The city needs to do better at every level. I watch Richard all day long taking phone calls from people who are suffering enormous stress in their communities because the city isn't doing its job and people are in danger. Houses next to theirs, historic houses, are burning down. He tries to make policy simply by advocating. He tries to build bridges between people. And there used to be a neighborhood prosecutor program. But Heidi Feldstein Soto came in and said, oh, gosh, I don't have enough staff to actually file charges. So she eliminated, like, one of the very few things that works in the city and moved all these prosecutors off. These used to be people in the city who you could call, and they would actually be able to get fire chiefs and police officers to go to sites and help with things and they're just gone it's like they they just a road just washed out and hardly anyone knows because few people do what Richard does Hmm. it shouldn't be like this it should not be this hard and citizens I think at this point like we know a lot of people have moved away people who really care and they've just given up and everyone who we lose is an enormous loss that we cannot recover from and the new people who come have this feeling like, oh, I want to live in L.A. and maybe get my career going, but this is not a good place to live. That's not okay.
people need to feel at home here. And how can you feel at home when everywhere you look, you just see how nothing works? Right. You, you mentioned Heidi Feldstein, Soto, the current city attorney, and we've been talking about story structure. Arcs, right? You, can, you, 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 you talk about technique, story structure, the character arc. So it, this is a really interesting, every minute is interesting. I'm particularly interested in the new city attorney, Heidi Feldstein Soto, because of course the arc for every city attorney is the exact same. You run for office and you tell everyone what they want to hear and you sit down at your desk at your first day and you are seized by the overwhelming compulsion to issue criminal indictments against every sitting elected council member and city council. Every single city attorney has had this moment, I guarantee you. And then a couple of days go by and you're like, Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And then they realize, oh, the job of the city attorney is so simple. I just write checks. That's all the city attorney Settlements. does. And, and this is just such a great arc. And we're now living Heidi Feldstein Soto's character arc of realizing that actually all the city attorney does is write checks. Hmm. We're pressed for time. I'm we have sorry, about, we have to go to court. No, it's okay. So we have about 10 minutes left. So I want to spend five minutes maybe on the Huntington Library and yeah. the reader program. Oh, please. Yes. So you had introduced this to me, Richard, when we talked last week. And I had no idea that this existed. Can you give us maybe like a five-minute summary of the reader program and what resources are available to people that have a library card, I guess it's called? You have a little lanyard you wear around your neck. I, I know. I'm looking at several right now. Stephen doesn't have them. That's because he got to go to Belize. It's complicated. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. This library exists for scholars, independent scholars, as well as those who are affiliated with institutions, as well as people who have book deals. When we first tried to come here, we had just landmarked, helped landmark Charles Bukowski's bungalow court in East Hollywood. And the, the Bukowski archives had been accessioned here. And this place was so locked down, all we could do was sit in a snack room and talk to a curator. We were not allowed to even and, see what and, was and, going on inside. And, and, and like we were talking to her, and like after 15 minutes, we both realized, Oh my God. This is she, as far as it goes. Oh like my, we're, oh we're getting a power bar and that's it, man. Like she's giving us a cup of coffee and we don't actually get to see the Bukowski papers. Like what? But something changed. <laughs> this institution has changed a lot in the last few years and it became clear that they were going to start welcoming independent scholars. And so we asked for the opportunity to become readers. We had to get letters of recommendation and that can be hard to do. Back get somebody to actually write a letter. But we did and started coming here, and what we discovered is that you can pull rare materials that the entire history of Southern California is here, and we've had the opportunity. Stop. Repeat that. Repeat. You can pull rare materials and consult them in a special collection where they give you gloves, and they'll give you a light box if you need it, if you're looking at transparencies. The other part. The history of Southern California is here. There's many things that no one has... Yeah. I won't say no one's looked at them, because that's always a... a a bugbear for archivists. An archivist has looked at things. People prepare finding aids. They're not just boxes sitting back there. Although I'll tell you, sometimes there are things that are new. I, I once pulled out a piece of paper where uh, a scholar who was studying the shapes of human craniums working in institutions, working in prisons, had actually sketched around the head of someone who had just been executed, and there were body fluids on this piece of paper, and I don't think they were supposed to be there. But that was a collection that was accessioned off of eBay, and sometimes the scholars here find things just before they spread into the wilds. But you can come here, whatever you're working on, 
you can meet other scholars, you can go down into the stacks and actually just look at things on the shelves, which for us is transformative. And Richard, you can talk too. Kim, I think what we want to say, because we don't have a lot of time, is we could not be who we are without the Huntington. This is the most important institution of research for us in what we do. We would not be who we are were it not for the Huntington. The Huntington is an incredible resource from every aspect. Every great reimagining of California can be found here at the archives. You can talk to people who have, historians who have documented that. Like everything you need to know about what people thought California should be in 1950, in 1960, in 1970, in 1980, I think. And now too. And a couple of times we've stumbled on really important archives that were like sitting next to people's washing machines. And we've been able to say, you should really talk to the curators. Maybe the place for this is not next to your washing machine. And so like the Lugo family papers are here now and photographs. And we're really glad to have helped bring an old California family's entire history to be interpreted and be part of the future. It is not a spectator sport to be a reader. You have to dig. And just to wrap this up, just two weeks ago, we do all this work with all these different fronts and all these different leads. And we have a a thousand different leads in our head that we're looking for every minute. And about two weeks ago, I found buried in the giant accessioned Los Angeles Times records, which Otis Chandler accessioned to this institution in 2000. And I think three staff members came over from the Times as a result of this succession. It's really incredible. To organize um, it. To organize it and, and stayed on as, as, as staff, curatorial and archival staff. Um, in these papers, buried, I found, because of a hint someone gave me 10 years ago, I found the unpublished history of the Los Angeles Times from the 1990s, which Otis Chandler suppressed. It's all here. I'm supposed to know I, I don't know if it's all here, but there's so much here. and You, you have to look. And you have to actively go through the card catalogs. On that note, we're going to, the final question is that from this recording, you have to run to court to attend a hearing. A pre-hearing scheduling session. <laughs> that's involving the Catholic Charities of Los Angeles, the social service arm of the Archdiocese, and its proposed demolition of the former Benebrith Lodge number 487. Let me just say that my grandfather's drugstore was across the street from the Benet breath. Your grandfather's drugstore where he gave injections of speed to Teamsters. <laughs> there is that wrinkle Probably. in the story. <laughs> that makes it more interesting. I think so. You have four minutes to describe the situation. So what is going on and what are you we looking have, forward we to? We have a real problem with people who own historic buildings and propose demolishing them for nothing. Adaptive reuse is great, and a lot of old buildings... We, we were not like these cranky preservationists like our friend Nathan Marsak, who believed nothing should ever change. History is history. Buildings are not frozen in amber. They need to be used. They need to be respected, but occupied. Unfortunately, this really cool building, which went from being a Jewish social club in the 20s to being an important union hall, became, as so many of these large structures are, uh, a Korean church, and has been vacant for a while. And Catholic Charities obtained it, and they said, oh, we want to build like this restorative village for foster youth transitioning out of the system, which I think is a fantastic idea. We 100% support this, and it's a huge parcel with a mostly surface parking lot. But somehow they've gotten to the point where instead of doing an adaptive reuse and respecting this historic structure, they just want to tear everything down. And then they got cranky because we were with, with our friend Stephen Luffman trying to see it landmarked. And they said, actually, 
We just want to tear it down entirely because it's got mold. And we don't want to build even this restorative village. And there's this extraordinary thing that's happened, which is that the city, even though city planning doesn't really do anything to protect historic resources anymore, and you can't have an HPOZ, you can't have an historic district, there's still this kind of zombie community redevelopment agency, which created these overlay zones, which are for development. And these agencies don't exist anymore. They were suppressed at the state levels, like the Vatican suppresses monasteries. But they still exist as planning tools in the city, which means the city planning department and the Office of Historic Resources can say, actually, Catholic Charities, because this building exists within an old CRA zone, we have authority. And we think it's a a bad contribution to the cityscape to just tear this down. So even though you're seeking a demolition permit to put in nothing, we're not going to let you have that demolition permit. And they've sought a decision from a judge. Relief. They've sought sought a writ of mandate. A writ of mandate, which is often a tool preservationists use when city planning is trying to force through an inappropriate development. We love CEQA. And so we'll just be very curious to see what happens. Our hope would be that Catholic Charities would actually want to build this restorative village for the transitioning foster youth. I think it's a great neighborhood for it. It's, there's, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of transit down there, and it's a huge underused parcel with a very small portion of it is the historic building. But we'll see what happens. I, I'm always curious to see what a judge thinks of land use issues because at the end of the day, judges are making decisions not emotionally as we do and not from a profit perspective like developers do, but they want to look at the law. And the law is often just the simplest part of this whole process. True. Right, and just very very quickly to round this out. So this building we're talking about, 1923, uh, Norton. Norton is the architect. He's the architect of Wilshire Boulevard Temple. S. Tilton Norton. S. Tilton Norton. He's the, the 1936. He builds Wilshire Boulevard Temple. 1924, B'nai Brith, this building we're talking about is built. Its sister building is the second Mount Sinai Temple at 4th and New Hampshire, same year. Both beautiful Ernst Bachelder tile facade. Just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. When the AFL-CIO took over this building in the 40s, they put ceramic medallions of AFL. So it's it really... It's, it's got a layer of history right there. So the questions, the, quest, the legal questions at stake for this pre-hearing scheduling session are... Which will probably take 13 seconds, right? The archdiocese is basically saying they seek to be exempt from planning process in the city of Los Angeles. Or anywhere. Who, which is a really fascinating question. <laughs> do, like, do religious organizations <laughs> exist outside of the law? I mean, they live in, they live and work in cities. They buy property. And Kim, they don't pay property tax. Kim mentioned our friend Stephen Lussman in a historic monument application. So this court case is really interesting because our friend Stephen filed an historic monument application for B'nai B'rith last year. Which is a terrific document, well worth reading. And because of state laws and federal laws around religious persons and religious institutions, they say you cannot compel a religious institution to do certain things. And one of them is you cannot compel them to landmark a church of theirs. And so the city of Los Angeles wrote to the archdiocese, to Catholic Charities, and said, hey, we've got this landmark application for this 1923 building at the corner of, of 9th and Union that you own. Do you want to reject it? And they said, yes, of course we want to reject it. 
don't accept it because we're exempt. So that and means so, no hearings. It didn't go any further than just being submitted. And they applied for another demolition permit because they said, no, we don't want a landmark. And the city refused the demolition permit. So this is just, this is really, this is bated breath, right? Is the judge going to make a decision that opens the door for the archdiocese to develop unfettered. And they own a lot of other properties. It's not just this corner. Every, and there's a every, lot of churches. Is every developer going to become a Catholic now? <laughs> and become part of the archdiocese? That was a joke. I didn't. But these are interesting. These are interesting meditations as we go into this hearing. And, and also we, we just, Stephen Luffman landmark Litton Savings in Hollywood, right on the edge of the West Hollywood, Hollywood border at Crescent Heights. It's beautiful mid-century modern uh, bank building that was built by Kurt Meyer. And Kurt Meyer walked away from his architectural practice in order to do public service and to help save the, the Central Library, work at the CRA, as a matter of fact. And we really respect the work that he did because he could have aggrandized himself and become a more successful architect, but he tried to make LA better. And in return, Frank Geary, who I think is a hack, lent his name to this project that was supposedly this massive development at the gateway of the Sunset Strip. So they had to demolish Lytton Savings, even though it was landmarked. And this crooked city council with the Weezar in that crowd altered an agenda so that they heard the approval for the development before they heard the landmarking of Lytton Savings. Even though Lytton was supposed to be first on the agenda, they just screwed with the agenda that day so that they could demolish the building. And they did demolish the building. And now they're seeking to flip the parcel. There's no Frank Gehry project. It's all just a hustle. And everything was destroyed. We really would like to give Steve Luffman a win for one of his preservation campaigns because he was in the maw of this corruption. We are, too. The same thing happened with our L.A. Times nomination, but they haven't demolished the Pereira building yet, and we hope they won't. But they did demolish Litton Savings. Let's save okay, Benet so Breath. I'm, I'm going to wrap this up, all of this up. I'm going to wrap this up by starting, going back to where we started at this podcast interview. Yucca and Vine. Boys Town. Yucca and Vine, John Walsh's apartment. Oh, yeah. John Walsh was a tremendous and very important activist in Los Angeles who died a couple of years back. John Walsh's apartment is about to be demolished. John Walsh fought the red line in Hollywood. Very important activist. John Walsh said, and I'll end with this, there are no permanent victories. There are no permanent defeats. Everything is an ongoing challenge. And so we're here just to keep fighting because you've just got to be present now and worry about now and what we're concerned with now and just keep fighting. We're just, there's nothing's permanent. That's a beautiful way to wrap up the conversation. I, we could talk for hours and I would love the opportunity to do that again at some time. But thank you for sharing these incredible stories of Los Angeles, for your work in preservation so that we don't demolish our rich history and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. James, really thank, it. Thank, thank you, you, James. Thanks for being deputized in our army. <laughs> it's Which kind of I, fun, isn't it? It's, I love it. My many thanks to Kim and Richard for coming on the show. As an update from our conversation about the old B'nabrith building, the issue was postponed until the middle of September, as the judge told the parties to come back with answers and a settlement. The future of the building and the larger concern about a nonprofit effectively doing whatever they want to do with their property is ongoing, as any settlement would require the Los Angeles City Council's approval. And we all know that these things take time. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you follow Kim and Richard on social media or read their Substack newsletter, 
you get a glimpse of them. But meeting them in person, in their element, surrounded by colleagues and friends, is a different experience altogether. Kim and Richard are authentically Los Angeles. They are both the defenders of what was and dreamers of what can be. I'm grateful that our paths have crossed and wear my deputy badge with pride. On September 9th, Kim and Richard will be hosting their Pasadena Confidential Bus Tour. For more information, please visit esotoric.com. Kim is a brilliant writer and is the pen behind their Substack and social media. Please visit and subscribe to their newsletter, Esoteric Secret Los Angeles, for all the latest on what trouble they've gotten into that week. This special episode was recorded at the Huntington, and I would be remiss if I didn't thank them for their generosity and support. The Huntington is a collections-based research and educational institution that serves not only scholars, but the general public. Opening its doors publicly in 1928, it has one of the world's greatest independent research libraries, with some 11 million items. Its knowledge and collections focusing on California history and culture are unrivaled. The Huntington features some 130 acres of botanical gardens, and its art museum collection has more than 42,000 objects featuring European and American art. My family has been a member of the Huntington for years, and I just recently applied for a reader card and could not be more excited. For more information, please visit Huntington.org. Continuing our collaboration, the featured song is All Right Here from the passing of bass wife and husband duo, The Next Doors. All Right Here is from Mika and Russell's debut album, Linda Vista, which was released last year. Please follow them on social media and at nextdoorsmusic.com for information on their next live shows. I recently shifted the show to the ACAST platform and I'm still in the process of figuring it all out. So my apologies for any technical or platform issues. There are so many people that help keep this show going. First, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my wife for being so patient and understanding. And to all that listen, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, Babbel, Athletic Greens, or a meal kit. One of my focuses for the fall and heading into 2024 is to experiment with Substack. You can find the link on my website, thecrowncitypodcast.com. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, get on the tour bus, and as always, see you around town. Podcasts? No. No. Okay, Dad. Cut. Why don't you? <laughs> They're weird. Okay. Well, I'm gonna start over. Start over. Okay. Do you like podcasts? No. Why don't you like podcasts? Because they are boring. <laughs>